great joy to be once again in God's presence and uh, study from his word. Uh, we've been seeing earlier about the conditions that the Lord Jesus laid for us to be his disciples. Uh, then we said that uh, being a disciple means following Christ and following Christ means leading a certain kind of life. So we described the life of a disciple. And uh, now we look at the marks of a disciple, which is sort of almost the same thing. Uh, some more characteristics of disciples or some more features that disciples of Jesus Christ should have. So the first one that we look at is a zeal. Uh, what's the meaning of the word zeal? Uh, zeal means uh, a focused and an intense commitment to a particular cause. So when I say I'm zealous, it means that there's something, that there's some cause, that's some purpose that is there, and I am relentlessly focused and committed towards this. So the Lord Jesus wants his disciples to have zeal. So, um, of course, when we have zeal, we are just following the footsteps of our master. So let's turn to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, uh, if we could read verses 13 through 17. Someone who gets it can read it. John chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Yes. So uh, the disciples went along with Jesus Christ to the temple and then suddenly they saw that the Lord Jesus is, you know, upsetting the whole place, overturning the tables and whipping those people and driving them all, uh, all away and all that. And they were probably surprised and taken aback. And then suddenly they were reminded of a verse in the Old Testament, uh, which speaks of the zeal of the house of the Lord on the part of the Messiah. So they realized that, yes, Jesus is the Messiah and he has the zeal for the Father's house. So the Lord Jesus Christ had that zeal and we also have to have zeal. Actually, in this world, uh, you find that there is a lot of zeal. There is no shortage of zeal. Uh, but a lot of times, this zeal is perhaps for the wrong thing or it is misguided. Uh, sometime back, I read, a few days back, I read this book. The author's name is Daniel Shayeste, and uh, he's from Iran. And uh, some of us are aware that in 1979, there was an Islamic revolution in Iran. Uh, before that, Iran was ruled by a shah, a king, and this king was friends with the Western powers. But then uh, in 1979, the Islamic fundamentalists took over. Now, this fellow was growing up uh, in the 70s. And uh, like most Iranians, he was very unhappy with the king. Uh, because the king was very corrupt and the rich people were oppressing the poor and all that. So uh, he was looking forward for uh, a brighter future for his country, Iran. And so he worked so hard. He said, I was very zealous. I did this. I did that. And um, perhaps some of us know the name of Ayatollah Khomeini. Uh, he is the religious leader of Iran. And uh, 
Daniel shares that this author was one of the supporters of Ayatollah Khomeini because he thought that this leader is going to bring change in Iran. So he says, so he writes in his book like this that uh, I wanted a good future for my country and that's why I was working hard towards that. And uh, when he went to university, he studied about atheism and evolution theory and, you know, Russia also has some influence in Iran, so about communism and atheism, he was exposed to these things. And then he said, uh, uh, but I thought to myself that uh, this universe must have a creator. Atheism cannot be true. There must be a creator. And uh, so if God exists, then who is this God? The answer that was given to him by all the people around him was Allah. Islam is a true and best religion. And so because he believed that this universe has a creator, he plunged himself into Islam and he started studying more and more of Islam and he uh, you know, uh, supported all the Islamic movement that was happening. And then he writes in his book like this that after the revolution, after the revolution took place, the Shah was overthrown, the new government came into place. He says, I realized that uh, the mullahs were not interested in improving the conditions of the people. The only thing they were interested in is a Sharia law. And uh, that made him very upset, that made him disillusioned. And when he started questioning the mullahs, questioning even this person, Khomeini, uh, he got into trouble. And uh, his life was in danger, he was arrested sometime and then... Anyway, finally he managed to escape the country and he went to Turkey and he got saved there. But uh, my point here is that uh, this is just one example of misguided zeal. So he says, for so many years of my life, I was working so hard, working so hard for Iran, working so hard for Islam. But then I realized that I was working hard for the wrong cause. And so he says, after I've got saved today, I want to work hard and be zealous for Jesus Christ. So often the zeal that we have is for the wrong things. It's a misguided zeal. So when anyone tells us, be zealous about this, you know, if you're like me, there are some questions that come up. And those are like, why bother? Why bother? Why can't we just relax and have a nice time? Why bother to, you know, take the trouble and be zealous and run after this and run after that? Uh, why bother with all this? And the answer is that the zeal that we are talking about is for the Lord Jesus Christ. The zeal that we are talking about is for God's glory. And uh, as we were reminding ourselves in the earlier session, everything in this universe is heading for God's glory. That is the ultimate objective. And that is uh, something which nobody can stop. Nobody can prevent it. It is going to happen. God's glory is going to be displaced in full in the whole universe. So God being who he is, and God, being, uh, having done what he has done, the most appropriate response is to be zealous. Okay. Why should I be zealous for, say, the environment? Probably I'll not make much difference. But why should I be zealous for Christ? Yes, the zeal that we have for Christ today is going to have eternal consequences. And that is why zeal is so fitting. Jesus Christ was zealous enough to leave heaven and come down and die on a cross for you and me. And therefore, zeal is the fitting response for a disciple of Christ. Okay? So, the Lord Jesus expects his disciples to be zealous. And here I'm trying to make the point that given who he is, given what he has done, that is the only appropriate response that a believer can make. I mean, if we are sitting around, you know, lazily, bored and disinterested, that is the ultimate dishonor and the ultimate insult 
to the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, in order to be zealous, uh, we have to be focused. Uh, we have to be focused on our objective. Every, if you're zealous, you're zealous about something. So you have to keep reminding yourselves of something. So in our Christian lives, we need to be focused on our objective of honoring God, of glorifying God, of knowing Him more. And um, how do we keep this focus? So I'll just mention a couple of things which I have found helpful. I have found it helpful to constantly remind myself of how great God is and what great things He has done for me. So by spending time with God's Word or by reading about the lives of other people or by looking back into my own life or by singing songs, I remind myself of how great God is. And how great things he has done for me. And that helps me to be zealous. Then, in a negative sense, uh, when I feel like doing anything, I, I try to remind myself by asking myself this question. You know, 10 years from now, how much of this is going to count? You know, there are maybe friends who want me to spend time with them. Uh, perhaps I feel like spending time on the social media or, or something like that. Or maybe just visiting some place. Um, Ten years from now, these likes, these comments, these conversations, how much are they going to matter? And that helps me to keep my focus. Another thing which helps me is to ask, you know, who is benefiting from all this? Like, suppose we go to watch a cricket match. You know how much these cricketers are paid. I tell this even to my students. You know how much cricketers and actors are paid. How much do you get paid for watching the movie or watching the match? You know, who is benefiting out of all this? These are things that we have to keep in mind. Um, I sometimes use this term, holy selfishness. Holy selfishness. In a sense, what's in it for me? Uh, not in a purely selfish way, but in a genuine spiritual way. Uh, if I'm going to do something, spend my time in a particular activity, like say if I spend... Imagine watching a one-day match. It starts in the morning and ends in the evening. So I spend seven or eight hours watching a cricket match. What's in it for me in terms of real value? In terms of something that is going to last for eternity? When I ask myself these questions, that helps me to keep my focus on what is, what is truly right and what truly matters. Um, another way that we maintain our zeal is to develop good habits or develop good routines. Uh, like, for example, you have a definite time and a place every day for your quiet time. That's a good habit. You have a place where you sit. You have a time where you sit. And you develop that as a habit. And so, as a habit, every day you spend time with God in the morning. Uh, this is something which helps us to keep our focus. Um, as I mentioned yesterday, um, in, in, in a city like Bombay and perhaps in Bangalore also, we, we waste a lot of time in traveling. So, one of the things that I have found helpful to keep my zeal going is to read or to listen to something while traveling. So, you take an audio Bible or uh, a hard copy Bible or a soft copy Bible and then you read in long journeys. Uh, sometimes, you know, uh, the journey is supposed to be short and then suddenly it becomes long because there's a traffic jam or something. Develop the habit of praying during that time. I mean, even if you're driving, you can pray with your eyes open. Uh, so make the best use of the time. The time that everyone wastes, you know, try to redeem that. 
Redeem that by doing something which reminds you of God. And that helps us to keep our zeal. So develop these good routines, uh, good habits, and always ask the thing that I'm doing, who is benefiting from it, uh, and what is the use of it, or uh, for me, what real benefit is there. And keep reminding ourselves of God's greatness and what he's done for us. Uh, in the book that we are referring to, True Discipleship, uh, some examples of zeal are given. Does anyone remember any examples given there? Sorry? Ah, communism. So uh, there were these communist people who were so zealous about uh, their cause. Any other example? Sorry? Ah, soldiers who are willing to die for the country. Uh, there are people who are so enthusiastic to go and fight, even knowing that they might get killed in the process, and still they are willing. And I think there, uh, William McDonald makes the case that if these people, uh, I honestly think communism is a worthless, stupid ideology. And for that stupid ideology, if people are so zealous, uh, if they are willing to trust their party leaders who are sinful people, uh, how much more zealous we ought to be when our leader, our captain is Christ himself, okay? Uh, the same applies for soldiers. They're willing to die for their countrymen who perhaps don't care for them. Uh, how much more we ought to be willing to die for others when Christ has died for us. Any other examples from the book? Yeah, Jim Elliot. I think he says something like, make me, by, make me thy flame or consume, uh, set me aflame with zeal. Um, and he is quoting from a poem that was written by Amy Carmichael, right? Uh, I think another person mentioned there is C.T. Studd, who speaks about uh, running a rescue shop one yard away from hell, you know? Um, uh, C.T. Studd, I think he gave his entire fortune for the Lord's work. Uh, in today's money, I think it would amount to around 30 crores, uh, 30 crore rupees, if you convert it to rupees. So he gave everything for the Lord's work and he said, uh, the Bank of England might fail, but the Bank of Heaven is never going to fail. So these are people with zeal. And, um, you know, when we look at these examples, we are also inspired to be uh, zealous. Um, I just want to uh, show a short video which illustrates the zeal of one man. Um, if you all could put it up. With 20,000 people, found myself crying and believing on Jesus, and the 
the amazing, glorious thing has been a reality pretty well every day ever since. George became passionate about sharing his newfound faith. One of his earliest opportunities was back at Ramsey High. This is a very special auditorium. Ramsey High School that looks almost the same as 60 some years ago. And shortly after I came to Jesus, I was able to give my testimony to almost the whole student body because I was president of the student council. And later I came back at Christmas break. And in this auditorium, hundreds came to the meeting, including my own father. And when I gave an open invitation to believe on Jesus, about 125 people stood, many of them my fellow high school students, to trust the Lord. With Dorothea Clapp's prayers for George's conversion now answered, her prayers for him to be a missionary were beginning to be answered. For it was on the streets of New York that he discovered he had a heart and a gift for evangelism. Times Square is a very special place in my life. It especially became important because two years after I came to Jesus, I was hiring buses and bringing people to the big, famous uh, 1957 Billy Graham crusade where tens of thousands professed the Savior. And I remember one night they said the place was full. I didn't want to take a seat where someone could sit and hear the gospel for the first time. So I came out right near here and preach the gospel in the open air for the first time in my life. It was also on these streets that a vision was forming, which was to become Operation Mobilization. I came here as a young Christian and distributed thousands and thousands of leaflets with this conviction, everybody in the world should have the gospel at least once. That conviction has never, never left me and is part of the heart, part of the heartbeat of Operation Mobilization. The greatest period of church growth in the entire thousands of years of history is going on right now. George graduated and went on to Merivale Liberal Arts College. At Merivale College, I met a guy named Dale Roton, who was sort of older than me in the Lord, and he became my mentor. But I had a vision for going to Mexico in my summer holidays. So I challenged Dale to go. I challenged my college roommate, Walter, to go, and off we went. Selling some of their possessions to raise funds, they set off in the summer of 1957 with a van load of literature, calling themselves Send the Light. Nearly 60 years later, Walter Borchard and George remember that trip. This is Walter Borchard. One of my closest friends, best man at my wedding, roommate at Merville College before I went to Moody and he went to Wheaton. And Walter was with Dale and I on that first trip to Mexico in 1957. Was so something especially that stands out in your mind? When we got to the uh, border, to cross the border, this was a big deal back then because there were certain restrictions on uh, bringing um, Christian literature into the country and we... We really didn't know what was uh, going to happen, but uh, we, we crossed the border late at night and really it didn't have any interference, and we thank God for that provision. So uh, as a young Christian, it was quite an experience to experience the Lord provide in situations you couldn't necessarily plan for uh, by yourself. And I'm sure if, I, if we had known in advance, my parents would have never let me go and... Uh, So maybe it's a good thing there are things you don't know in advance because you you learn from those kind of experiences. It was three students on a summer trip to Mexico, but 
what it eventually led to, no one in their wildest dreams could have imagined. Not even George. When Dale Roton and Walter and I first came to Mexico the summer of 57, we stayed at the Wycliffe Bible Translator Place, not far from here, giving out literature. That was not allowed. We drove at night with our vehicle with the door open, distributing gospels underneath the door. In answer to prayer, soon Mexico was to become wide open for the gospel. We can't get the average Christian out of their little small world into the big picture and into sharing their faith. In 1958, George moved west to one of America's most respected Bible colleges. January 1950. Yeah, does, does anyone identify the person? George Berber, yeah. So he's the one who started OM, and uh, he's in the paper edition of uh, our True Discipleship book. He's the one who's uh, written the foreword. So, uh, I mean, I consider himself a good example of zeal, a college student who gets saved, uh, tries to share the gospel with everyone he meets on the streets and his classmates and all that, uh, uses his summer holidays to go to Mexico and distribute literature there. And God just used that enthusiasm and it caught on and it became such a big uh, organization. Some of us have perhaps been on those ships. And, uh, you know, I, I first got... I first got interested in the gospel uh, when somebody from the Dulos ship, uh, the Dulos ship came to Goa in, I think it was 1996 or 1995, and uh, they, they preached, someone preached the gospel in an evening uh, meeting that was there uh, from the ship Dulos. Uh, that's one of the OM ships, and that's when I first got interested in taking the Bible seriously. Uh, so, you know, one man's zeal, you know, can lead to so much in the world. So that's uh, a challenge for us. Yeah, after this, let's go to faith. Faith is basically... Faith is basically the belief in something. Uh, when, when you say, I have faith in this, it means that I believe that this particular thing is true. Now, as believers, as disciples of Jesus, as Christians, we already have exercised saving faith. That is, we've already exercised faith in the person, in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in saving our souls. We already believe in Christ for forgiveness of sins, uh, for salvation, for redemption, you know, for eternal life and so on and so forth. Uh, but it doesn't stop there. Uh, let's read Second Corinthians 5 and verse 7. Anyone who gets it can read it. Second Corinthians 5, 7. Yeah. For we walk by faith and not by sight. So it's not just that we became Christians by faith. But even our life as Christians is a life of faith. We are walking by faith and not by sight. Now, the ordinary people of the world, they walk by sight. You know, you see something and then you react to it. You take your decisions based on exactly what you see. So that's a normal way of living. But our way of living is not that way. Why is the Christian life uh, not a life of sight but a life of, life of faith? Because in our Christian life, it is necessary to go with what God says about reality, then what is obviously visible. 
Like for example, if I'm a student, uh, the reality that I see around me is that everyone is going for classes and they are busy with their studies and so on. Now I have a situation where I have got lots of classes to attend, uh, but I also have church meetings and the timings happen to be the same. So what do I do? Uh, the reality around me is that everyone is going for classes. So the, the walk of faith is to say that there is a reality that God is also presenting to me. And God says that you honor me first and I will honor you. God says that you need to give more importance to eternity than to the things that are there around you. So it is a step of faith. It is a walk of faith to say that, okay, even though I may have a class in the evening when there is a church meeting, I will still make it a point to attend the church meeting. Or I will abstain from enrolling in a class which has all its classes in the evening. Am I making sense? This is a life of faith. Uh, there are some situations where we have the opportunity to gain dishonestly. I mean, depending on the kind of work that we have, maybe there are some places where people are willing to pay extra for something. You're handling admissions in a college and there are people who are willing to pay you extra money in order to, you know, get their children admitted. So there are opportunities for such gain. And what we see around us are people are making full use of such opportunities. But the life of faith says, no, I will not indulge in this dishonest gain. In the long run, that only is for my ultimate good. Suppose we are in a difficult marriage. The normal course in this world is either you be mentally divorced or you also be physically divorced. By mentally divorced, I mean that, okay, we two are staying under one roof, um, you know, just for economic convenience, but our lives are different. There are many people in this country who are mentally divorced or emotionally divorced. And take it a step further, you actually separate. Uh, this is the life by sight. But what is the life of faith? Uh, God tells us in his word that marriage is to be lifelong. So no matter how difficult it is, uh, we should make our efforts to work things out, to stay together, to love the other person and so on. So uh, this is an example of life of faith versus a life of sight. Uh, sometimes we need to take a stand, maybe in our family or in the workplace. You know, other people are willing to do something that's wrong. They want us to join along with them. And... Um, the life of sight says that, see, uh, you have no option. You'll have to do what everyone else is doing. You know, others are doing it, so you'll also have to do it. That's what the life of sight says. But the life of faith says, no, I can take a stand and God will take care of me. So uh, in our lives, we will come across situations where for the Christian, the Christian has to take a choice of faith against the choice of, you know, just sight. But the things that I mentioned so far, you know, the family, the workplace are church meetings, our marriages, these are like basic things. Uh, they can also be more difficult things that God is calling us to do, you know. Uh, yesterday evening we were discussing about uh, living without reserves of money, a frugal lifestyle, not saving excessively for the long-term future. And it takes courage to do that. Um, in the newspapers, for example, every other, uh, every once in a while there is like an economic supplement, for the Times of India or other newspapers. And they'll tell you all about how much you should save and what kind of insurance you should have and what kind of pension plans you should have and this and that and how you should plan your investments, wealth creation, asset management. You know, that's all the language of the world with which we are bombarded with. And then to take a stand and say that I will live by faith, I will forsake all, 
I will, uh, if I have any reserves, I will give them away for God's work. You know, this is a tough example, but it's an example of a life by faith. What if God is calling us to go to a difficult place and preach the gospel there? To preach the gospel in a dangerous or a risky situation. That also requires faith. Okay? So you have certain basic things. I think a lot of us are struggling with these basic things. But beyond that, we also have higher callings. Things to which disciples may be called. And these things require us to uh, exercise faith. Um, you know, there are many halls of fame uh, in this world. If you go to some institution then perhaps there will be a room in which there are the photos of many people and great people who have done something good and they call that the hall of fame. And these are actually all lists of dead people whose lives perhaps don't matter today. Uh, but in the Bible, uh, Hebrews chapter 11 uh, is called the hall of faith because it speaks of many people who exercised faith. So let's uh, see something about them. Uh, shall we read verses 32 to 38? Hebrews chapter 11 Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 to 38. Could someone please help me? Yes. So, yeah. 38, yeah. Yeah. So it speaks of all the people who exercised faith before the first century. And these are the kind of sufferings that they underwent. And it says the world was not worthy of them. But these people are going to be in heaven. They make up what is called the cloud of witnesses. That's the term that is used in the next chapter. The cloud of witnesses. And uh, uh, personally for me, one of the uh, excitements in going to heaven is to meet these kind of people. You know, what will you tell David if you meet him? You know, what will you tell Charles Spurgeon or George Berber if you meet them in heaven? What will you tell the prophet Daniel? Um, but when we meet these people, you know, this principle is also valid. And that is uh, the extent to which we can enjoy their company is going to also depend, in, depend on how similar to them we are. If they have exercised faith, then it will be joyful to have their fellowship if we also have exercised faith. You know, if, uh, if they are people who have stopped the mouth of lions and wandered here and there and underwent so much of suffering and so on, and we are people who ate and slept and went to church and drank and then gave birth to children and then died, you know, then we are not going to enjoy their company. Uh, so may that be a challenge uh, for us. Do you, do you know the name of this person? Yeah, so... 
George Miller. So, uh, this is what George Miller wrote once. He says, so many believers were harassed and distressed in mind or brought guilt on their consciences on account of not trusting the Lord. That is, they are unable to exercise faith in the Lord, he says. And so, so many believers are living in this defeated condition. That is what he writes about the time and place where he was living. And then he, was, uh, he's, he writes like this in his, uh, uh, in his uh, diary, that uh, I was thinking about how I can help these believers. How can I help people to actually exercise faith? What should I do to illustrate to people that God is faithful and we can trust God for the needs of our life, for the things that matter to us? And uh, this is the idea that he came up with. So he says, it seemed to me best done by the establishing of an orphan house. It needed to be something that could even be seen by the natural eye. That is, he wants even unbelievers to see it. And he says, now if I, a poor man, simply by prayer and faith, obtained, without any asking any individual, the means for establishing and carrying on an orphan house, there would be something uh, with the Lord's blessing which might be instrumental in strengthening the faith of the children of God besides being a testimony to the consciences of the unconverted of the reality of the things of God. So he says, I'm going to start an orphanage. And for the needs of the orphanage, I'm going to only ask God. I'm only going to pray and trust God to fulfill these needs. And it will be proof to believers as well as to unbelievers that God is faithful. And that's exactly what uh, George Muller did. Um, by the grace of God, he was able to have this orphanage and I think towards the end of his life, more than 10,000 orphans were being supported. And, uh, you know, many people had these stories about how uh, they had these big needs for the orphanage and how uh, they would only pray and God would move the hearts of people in the city and elsewhere and they would come and provide food and money and so on and so forth. Um, but I'm giving him as an example to show how one man exercised faith and by exercising faith, he was also able to strengthen the faith of others. He was concerned that believers have weak faith and he wanted to strengthen their faith. So may our faith also be strengthened. Then the next thing we'll go on to is prayer. Um, I'll just go through quickly. Uh, I think there are around 11 points that are mentioned in the book uh, about prayer. So, we'll just run through these quickly. Uh, the first one is that prayer should come from a strong inward necessity. It should be something that we are burdened about. Uh, true Christian prayer is something like this. God already has a purpose and a will. So, God puts that burden into the hearts of those people who are seeking Him, who are close to Him. And when they get this burden in their heart, God's people pray and the prayer goes up to heaven. And then down comes the answer. So it's a downward, upward and downward movement. First a downward movement, God putting his purposes as burdens in the hearts of his people. Then the upward movement that is prayer rises to God. And then downward again, God sends his powerful answer to accomplish his purposes. So prayer should come from an inward longing, a necessity that we have. It's not like, oh, someone said something, okay, yeah, come, let's pray about it. Not like that. Then secondly, Prayer is not as... Okay, I also uh, want to uh, ground this in the Bible. Uh, prayer should come from a strong inward necessity. 
How much time do we have left? Based on that, F 15 minutes, 5 minutes, okay. Okay, so since we have only 5 minutes, instead of asking uh, you all to come up with examples, I'll just mention one, one example from the Bible. Uh, prayer should come from a strong inward necessity. Uh, one example in the Bible is Elijah. Elijah first told Ahab, there's no, the, thus says the Lord, there's not going to be any rain except at my word. 15 minutes? Okay, fine. Uh, at thy, uh, prayer, uh, uh, the rain is not going to come except at my word. And for three years there was a famine in the land and after that Elijah met Ahab again and then um, um, you know, he confronted all the prophets of Baal at that Mount Carmel. He killed all the prophets of Baal and the prophets of the grove. And after that, you remember what he told Ahab? After that Mount Carmel incident, what did Elijah tell Ahab? He said, get, get back home quickly because it's going to rain. So Ahab got onto his chariot and went and then Elijah started praying. And he was crouching down you know, uh, kneeling down and praying. And then he went and asked his, he asked his servant to go and check whether the clouds are coming. You know, if you visit Mount Carmel, it's this huge, tall mountain. And from one side of the mountain, you can see a great distance into the sea. Uh, and Elijah's servant said, I, I don't see anything. And so Elijah continued to pray in this crouching position. And seven times he sent his servant and finally a cloud was to be seen. So Elijah was praying out of a great burden, out of a great necessity. Uh, he had stopped the rain and now he was asking for rain. He had shown God's power against the prophets of Baal. And now again he wanted to show God's power and faithfulness to the people of Israel in sending rain. And so out of this great burden, Elijah prayed. Secondly, prayer is not a substitute for action. Um, any example in the Bible where action was needed and action was done rather than just praying? Sorry? Okay, people like Nehemiah. Nehemiah prayed, but he didn't just pray, but he actually asked permission from the king and went to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls there. Yes. Uh, David, he came and saw the army, he saw Goliath is challenging the people of Israel. Everyone was very frightened. Now David did not just say that I'm going to pray about this. He was a man of prayer, but he actually went and fought Goliath. Okay? So prayer is not a substitute for action. Then thirdly, uh, prayer is to be based on simple faith. And um, you don't have to grapple with theological mysteries. You know, for example, sometimes we are praying for the salvation of a person. I, I'm praying that so-and-so gets saved. But what if that person is very stubborn? You know, God is not going to manipulate that person. That's also true. So then, should I really pray for that person? Because I do not know whether that person is stubborn. Now, the simple biblical answer is, you pray for the burden that you have, unless God specifically says, do not pray about this. Otherwise, you pray. Uh, any example from the Bible of this kind of situation or this kind of prescription? We pray a simple prayer, although, you know, there are a lot of mysteries behind. Okay, yeah, what was... Uh... Okay, Jehoshaphat said, I do not know what to do. That was when the armies of two, three countries were coming against him. He said, I do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Please help us, okay? But then I think there was no theological mystery. 
I think they were all convinced that it is God's will for them to get delivered. Okay, any other example? There's one little verse that came to my mind. Um, uh, if someone could turn to Psalm, Psalm 122 and verse 6. Psalm 122, verse 6. Yeah, we are called to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Now, we also know that many times it is God's will to punish Jerusalem. It happened in the past, it's going to happen in the future also. God's will is to try the people of Israel. And yet here the simple prayer is, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. It is our duty to pray for the, for the welfare and for the well-being of God's people, of God's city. So we may not understand all the theological mysteries, but prayer has to be based on simple faith. Okay? Then um, fourthly, uh, the fourth point that is mentioned in the book is that prayer should be accompanied by a wholehearted devotion to Christ. The Lord respects the prayers of those people who are devoted to him. Uh, any example, scriptural example for this? Lovely. Daniel. Daniel was devoted to God he, and he showed his devotion in various ways and God listened to the prayer. When Daniel prayed, an angel came and, you know, told him so many things and so on. Any other example? Hannah. Hannah, Hannah was a sincere soul and out of, the, uh, out of the depths of her heart, she prayed to God and she got, her, got uh, Samuel as an answer. And Hannah shows her devotion with uh, the way in which she kept her promise of sending Samuel to the temple and taking care of him, providing for him there, and so on and so forth. Okay, so prayer should be accompanied by wholehearted devotion to Christ. Then, prayer should cost us something. Any example from the Bible? Yeah, Daniel prayed even though it was a risk to his life. Um, we have the Lord Jesus fasting and praying. We have the Lord Jesus sometimes praying through the night. So... That's prayer that costs us something. And here is also where fasting comes into play. Our human hearts are so deceptive. So when I pray for something, you know, sometimes it's so easy for us to pray for something without really meaning it. Because our hearts are so deceptive. But when we fast, when we set aside a separate time or an extended time and then we pray, uh, then that's one way to remind ourselves, to convince ourselves of the genuinity of the seriousness of what we are praying for. So, prayer should cost us something. Then, um, sixthly, the point that is made is, uh, prayer should not be a selfish prayer. Um, any, any example or any instruction like this in the Bible? Prayer should not be for selfish needs. Sorry? I didn't hear. Saul. Okay, yeah. Can you mention the example? What... What life, what example in Saul's life? Yeah, okay, yeah. He consulted a medium, so it was for his own desire and he had already gone against the purposes of God, okay. Any other example, praying for selfish purposes or 
forbidden, uh, we being forbidden from doing so in the Bible? James, I think it is James chapter 4 verse 3, which says, you pray, you ask, but you do not receive because you ask amiss to consume it on your own lusts. Yeah. Yeah. Someone else was saying something? Sorry? Ah, Jonah. Uh, Jonah wanted God to destroy Nineveh just because he didn't like them. So that must have been a selfish, uh, a selfish prayer. You know, um, uh, there's a sister in our assembly and she shared with me a question that uh, um, a colleague of hers had asked her. She teaches in a Catholic college. So, a Catholic college. So it was this Catholic colleague who told her like this, you know, what's the point of praying? Uh, if I want something that God does not want me to give me, God is unchanging. So anyway, he's not going to change his mind. So what's the point in me praying anyway? And that is absolutely right. That is absolutely right when it comes to praying for our own selfish desires. God is not going to change his mind. Okay. Then the seventh point that uh, McDonald makes is that honor God with great requests. God is a big God and so when we pray to him, we can pray for big things. Any, any scriptural example? Sorry? I didn't hear. Elijah. Yeah, Elijah was praying for rain. He was praying for fire to come down from heaven. Uh, in fact, Elijah even soaked the whole altar with water. It was a famine time, so they had to travel far to get the water. And then he prayed for fire to consume the altar and the water, the sacrifice, all that. So pray for big things. God is big and uh, therefore uh, we should not dishonor him by thinking that he is not capable of, capable of answering certain requests. Okay. Then prayer should be according to God's will. Any thoughts on that? Any scriptural example of that? Prayer according to God's will. Or negative example where someone did not pray according to God's will. Sorry? Yeah, the Lord Jesus prayed this prayer. You know, nevertheless, not by will be done, but let thy will be done. Right? So the Lord Jesus was particular in his prayer to take into account the will of the Father. So prayer should be according to God's will. And of course, yesterday we were talking about Knowing God's will. Knowing God's will comes by spending time with him, by being ready to accept his will, whatever it might be. Then prayer should be done when we do not have any unconfessed sin in us. If we have unconfessed sin in our lives, then our prayer is going to be hindered. Any example or any place in the Bible where such a thing is mentioned? Ah, Peter speaks of prayers being hindered. Uh, if you are not treating your wife properly, your prayers will be hindered. Yes. Any other example? Yeah. What does James 5 say? Yeah. Confess your sins to one another and then pray for one another. Right? In the Psalms, I think it is um, Psalm 32, where David says that, first I kept silence and God's anger was on me. And then I said, I will confess my sin. And then God forgave it. And, uh, you know, he answered my prayer. Someone said something else. Yeah. 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 Forgive us our sins as we forgive the sins of others. Yes. So then, um, prayer is not just something that we do, but we have to have an attitude of prayer always. That is, pray without ceasing. Always have an attitude of prayer. Uh, any example of this in the Bible? 
Lovely. Ah, First Thessalonians 5, I think it is, yeah, 23 is it or 16, I think it is. Yeah, which says pray without, 60, pray without ceasing. That's the instruction given. Any example where you can make out that someone in the Bible is always in an attitude of prayer? The Lord Jesus, uh, he was talking to his disciples and then suddenly after talking to his disciples, he would break into prayer with his heavenly father, right? So that shows an attitude of prayer. Uh, when uh, the Persian emperor, he asked Nehemiah, you know, why are you sad? And then Nehemiah told him and then he said, so, so what do you say now? And then Nehemiah says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. And then Nehemiah made a request saying that, please allow me to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. So uh, even while he was in the presence of this pagan emperor, Nehemiah had an attitude of prayer. And just before he spoke to the emperor, he let out a short prayer to heaven. So that's an example of praying without ceasing. And then finally, the 11th point that is made is that prayer should be specific. I don't think it's wrong to pray a general prayer. Like right now when we prayed for our country, that's somewhat general. We pray that many people would come to Christ in our country. Uh, it's not talking about one particular person. So it's a general prayer. But prayer, we should not shy away from making specific prayers. That this particular thing would happen in this particular person's life. Uh, any example of specific prayer in the Bible? Sorry? Uh, Hezekiah, yeah, what was the prayer that he made? Uh, for his extended life. God told him that your life is going to end and Hezekiah prayed for extended life and God gave it to him. Any other example? Sorry? Elijah prayed for rain, specific prayer. Sorry? Yeah, for fire to fall down from heaven. Uh, yeah. Yeah, okay, Paul's prayers for certain churches as to, you know, what should happen in their lives. Uh, Abraham's servant, Eliezer, he prayed when he was looking for a bride for Isaac. He prayed very specifically that the girl should come and offer water for my camels also and all that. So that's also an example of specific prayer. Um, when we make these specific prayers and when we get an answer to these prayers, you know, it is so encouraging. Uh, if we think that God is not answering our prayers or answering no you know, then we should look into our lives and see perhaps there is a disconnect between our will and God's will. But when we pray according to God's will, God answers. Uh, about two, three weeks back, uh, there was this uh, young lady, in, uh, young sister in, uh, in our assembly and uh, her one-year-old child and the one-year-old child was very sick and coughing badly and having fever and all that. And I could see that uh, the mother was finding it really difficult to see her child in this condition. And uh, after some time, she said, could you please pray for the child? So um, uh, we prayed for the child. And, um, you know, immediately after we said amen, all the coughing stopped. Uh, he went to sleep and uh, uh, he had a nice peaceful sleep. And after that, the fever also went. So it's, it's very uh, encouraging to, uh, uh, to get answers uh, to prayer. Uh, one of my students, uh, Anuradha, is sitting here, and I think she won't mind if I take this example, naming her. Uh, just two, three days before this camp, uh, she got the news that uh, the college has kept some, uh, suddenly scheduled some exams today, being Independence Day, and tomorrow. So she said that if these exams are there, then I won't be able to come. And um, so I was praying that, uh, you know, something would happen, God would make a way, and she would be able to come because... Um, 
I, I really wanted her to be part of this camp and uh, hear God's word and experience fellowship with God's people. So I prayed and then, you know, she went and spoke to the vice principal and they gave her special permission to, you know, write the exam on another day. So everyone else is writing the exam right now and tomorrow, but she is given special permission to write the example, exam on another day and that's why she is here. So, I mean, I was so touched when I saw that, you know, God listens and answers to these prayers. So let us be encouraged to pray, uh, to pray earnestly, to pray not for selfish needs, but to pray for God's glory in our own lives and in the lives of others. I'd just like to summarize this zeal, faith, and prayer uh, by reading this out to you. This was, found, uh, uh, this was found in an abandoned hut in Africa. Uh, so it's something that a Christian or a disciple has written. So I'll just read it to you. So it goes like this. I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I won't look back. I won't let up, slow down, back away and be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. And my future is secure. I am finished and done with low loving, sight walking, small planning, Smooth knees, colorless dreams, tame visions, mundane talking, chintzy giving, and dwarf goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be the first. I don't have to be top. I don't have to be recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by presence. I learn by faith. I love by patience. I lift by prayer and labor with power. My pace is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions are few. My guide is reliable. And my mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, deterred, lured away, turned back, diluted, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice. Hesitate in the presence of adversity. Negotiate at the table of the enemy. And ponder at the pool of popularity. Or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, back up, let up or shut up. Until I have preached, prayed, stored and stayed up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I must go on until heaven returns. Give until I drop. Preach until all know. And work until he comes. And when he comes to get his own, he will have no problems recognizing me. My colors will be clear. May God help us and bless these words to us. We're now going to spend some time in reflection. The questions will be up on the screen as well as it's available on the app. We're going to spend around two to three minutes on reflection.
I ask Jebin to come and close the session in prayer. After that, we'll be breaking for tea, and I request everyone to be back by 10 so that we can start the quiz session on time. Shall we bow our heads in prayer? Our loving and heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, once again for enabling us, Lord, to listen to your word. Lord, from what we listen, Lord, we pray, Lord, that you'll help us, Lord, to be zealous for you in all that we do. Lord, when we spend time, Lord, we pray that you'll help us, Lord, to understand if it is for your glory and to do it for your glory, Lord. Help us, Lord, to look forward to your will in our lives, Father. Lord, we pray that you'll strengthen our faith in the coming days, Lord, even in terms of finance or in terms of our different needs, Lord, we pray, Lord, that you will help us, Lord, that we will put our trust in you and you alone, Father. Lord, we pray that you'll help us, Lord, in our prayer as well, Lord, in the coming days, Lord, as we spend time in prayer, Lord, we pray that you'll place a burden on our hearts, Lord, that we will pray from, from our innermost soul to you, Father. Lord, and we pray that it will not be for selfish needs, but for others, Lord, for a gospel, Lord, for your purpose and for your glory through us and through others as well, Father. Lord, we commit the rest of the sessions into your hands as well, Lord. We pray that you will speak to us throughout this day. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.
Yeah, plus, plus other yeah. The commitment that I did.